Welcome back to God's Brand. Today is a segment of our Grown Man's Book Club. Um, we are finally getting able to actually start the book today and not just be going through the acknowledgments and the foreword and, you know, going through all the little meticulous details that kind of build up to the point of the actual story. So um, we haven't really talked too much about what this book's really going to be about. So um, I'm going to give just a little bit of an introduction for the book, which I'd say is kind of um, talking about the race riots that happened back in the day and um, maybe even some of the stuff that caused the anger that we've seen with the civil justice movements in the 60s. A lot of that motivation is going to be stemming from the anger that was caused to the communities um, back in the day. And one of those communities that we're going to focus on in this book is the Greenwood, uh, Greenwood District out in Tulsa. Um, it's a pretty small town from what I've heard and seen, um, although it was big enough to be a real city for the African-American community. So um, without further ado, we're going to get into chapter one. If you heard the last episode, you remember that um, the author of this book went around and, you know, talked to different state senators, um, people who had firsthand accounts of the people who lived here, and a, um, and even some of the people who were writing the columns back in the day in the 1920s about this stuff. So he definitely got a pretty broad idea of um, everything that happened, although, you know we're never going to get a one-sided argument. So as we get more into the book, we'll start seeing kind of what side he's forming here and um, really what's the beliefs of the author so we can kind of disconnect that and then, you know, figure out what the beliefs of God's brand is on this book, which is going to be really difficult. Um, you know, if you remember going through Frederick Douglass with us, then you remember that there was definitely points in that book where we kind of started seeing that Frederick Douglass himself wasn't too sure if the points he was arguing were full and that um, it was more fo he was more focused on just the reconstruction than he was, um, you know, the betterment of the people, which was, you know, very valid at that time. How are you going to rebuild the country um, for everyone? And, you know, that's a big concern. And it's there's problems that happen, you know, back during the Civil War that today we are still dealing with. And a lot of us have looked at it as if the problem left and it came back. But, you know, that's not how things work. You know, it's been around. It's been dormant. It's been laying there um, and just really not been reported on since we've had a lot of difficulties that this country has faced since then. So without further ado, on May 30th, 1921, the parade went on despite the rain. It formed up before 9 a.m., even as dark, low clouds moved in from the west. The day's forecast was, was for heavy showers, and sure enough, Tulsa would get them. But it was Memorial Day, and Tulsa would have a parade and a damn big one, come hell or high water. This was a city that brought 33 million worth of war bonds, that bought 33 million worth of war bonds, sent thousands of young men into military service, and prideful itself on not just its patriotism, but its Americanism. It even observed an American day 
Americanism Day. And when the 1920 U.S. Census concluded that Oklahoma had the national highest percentage of native-born citizens, Tulsa celebrated that too. Oklahoma comes nearest to being a pure American state of any in the Union. editorialized the Tulsa world were are so tremendously proud of that classification. During the war, Tulsa had demonstrated its vigilance against foreigns, slanders, and reds. The more Vilius going so far as to mer out beating and it's in hot tar to the local membership of the industrial workers of the world. Others deemed insufficiently loyal to the cause were made to see light. A few were packed off the insane asylums. Now, two and a half years after the war's end, the fever and the scarcity warned. Despite the threat of rain, Tulsa's line down, line, line downtown streets as motorcycles, cops roared up Cincinnati Ave from 5th Street to 7th, then west to Main and north through the heart of downtown. A seven-paced band drawn from the local musicians union followed. So we're getting a little bit of the scene, you guys, a little bit of the atmosphere of the town. And then came the veterans, scores of them. And the Grand Army of the Republic and the Confederacy through the recent war to end all wars. Oh, by the way, if you guys hear the construction going on in the background, there's not much I can do about it. They're working on the highway right behind me. And until we can get our, in, into our studio and have a little bit um, better sound quality, we're just going to have to deal with it. So bear with me, you guys. Uh, walking or conveying by various means through the fast, fat raindrops splattering down on the town that called itself the Magic City. Written accounts are silent on whether Tulsa black veterans, and there were many of them, were included in the progression. But it does not seem likely. Quite a few white Tulsans thought putting black Americans in uniform had been a mistake in the first place. Soon they would consider their opinions grimly vindicated. The parade had just reached its end at 2nd Street and Eglin Ave, when the skies finally opened full throttle and chased everyone to cover, soaking hats and spring dresses in fresh linen suits, whittling the red silk poppies, handmade by the children of French, of France, France. In every label, label. Every true Tolson, every true American wore the crimson flowers that morning as symbols of sacrifice and patriotism and also of American strength and generosity for the poppy sales.
help feed the starving children of Europe. As the parade wound wound down, participants and bystanders piled into their Nash's and Overlands, Buckles and Chevys and Maxwell's and Mitchell's and Humble's. A few, a few many have shorthorned into various variations of the Tulsa Four. A little runabout made right there in town. Everyone drove five straight as now arrow miles along the Federal Drive to Rose Hill. You know, I don't really know if I'm enjoying this writer's writing style. It's been very splashy. Uh, let's see how it goes, though. The new cemetery on the east edge of town where so many w- war dead were bur- were buried. The living st- stood in the downpour Heads bowed, listening to Tulsa's most decorated son of great war, Colonel Patrick Hurley, a future Secretary of War, indulgalized his fallen comrades. Little did they imagine that even as they memorized the dead, the distant battle, a deadly comedy of Tulsa's own had already been set in motion. A preserved scene, sense of indivisible of density blinded many Tolsons to the destruction passions sternly only a, a half trigger below a white hot rage. Tulsa was, after all, the oil capital of the world, the magic city. And if its titles were pretentious, they were also adept. In 20 years, Tulsa had grown from a cow town of barely a thousand inhabitants to more than 70,000. Wow. Flanked to the south, west, and north by major oil fields, whose value the military machines of the Great War multiplied many times over, Tulsa had become the financial and manufacturing center of the ascendant petroleum industry. Tulsa banks were the first in the world to cater to oil men, and because of it, had profited hugely from the triumph of the international combustion engine. Four rail lines served the city. The streets teemed with commerce of every kind. Convection Hall, built in 1914 at Bradley and Main Street, rev verbed to the music of Constro Patter Whiskey and other great musicians of the day. Into the rumbling of the passing train, Tulsa High School was some justification claims standing as one of the best in the country. Great mansions, a bulk manifestations of the oil riches bought and sold in the lobby of downtown's hotels. Tulsa rose on the buff overlooking the Arkansas River. 
But there was another side of Tulsa, downtown on 1st Street, where Seedley hotels and boarding houses fronted the vents and misery, suicide, domestic violence were regularly occurrence. In early May 1921, federal narco officers, Charles C. Post declared Tulsa overrun with narcotic peddlers and said that 18 had been arrested in the past month. Hmm. And said that, oh, sorry, a report by investigator T.L. Jocelyn entitled Federal Report on Vince Conditions in Tulsa identified 14 houses of prosecution and claimed gambling, bootlegging, prostitution are very much in evidence. West, across the river from the mansions, aimed the stink grimly of the refiners. Working men and their families lived in dirt floors, shankies along up-paved streets in poverty and disease. I wonder what side of town this is. Two social workers reported an unusual, large, and great negatively no, neglected some slum district in which large families are living in one-room tenants or shacks. They noted we have heard of heard it said several times that Tulsa has no slums. As a matter of fact, Tulsa has an acute slum problem in and around the city lie drag spots of wrecked housing where people lived in any kind of miserable shelter without sewer, water supply, or garbage collection. Many people crowded together in a shack or tents with no possible possibility of decent privacy with no sanitary protections. You know, I hope you guys know we still have these around today. Don't think whatever this story says that it got fixed because we still deal with this shit today in America, in Oklahoma, and also in every other state because they're there. And yeah, some of them are African-American, but a majority of them are Hispanics and they're struggling right now. And we have to stick together and figure out how the hell we're going to get ourselves out of poverty. So without further ado, let's keep moving. Besides West Tulsa, continued the social workers, some of the worst in the areas, areas were in the Negro District that stretched more than a mile long either side of Greenwood Ave, north from Archer Street of the northeast edge of town, the Black Wall Street of America, the name given Greenwood by Booker T. Washington during the 1913 visit was a bit of a minister Greenwood had no formal financial institution, no banks, no brokerage houses. In a sense, Black Main Street of Amer America might have been more accurate for Greenwood was alive with its enterprise spirit of commerce. Remarkable, given Black Americans' limited access to capital and markets, in the early 20th century, something about Greenwood drew people from all over the United States. One of them, a young mother from New York named Mary E. Jones Pearson, operated a school where she taught typing, a shorthand 
perceptively. Paris described the place she lo- she so loved, but which was held in such disdain by whites. On leaving the Frisco station, Paris wrote, Going north to Archer Street, one could see nothing but Negro business places going east on Archer for two or more blocks. There you would behold Greenwood Ave, the Negro's Wall Street, and as I soar to some evil-minded real estate men, there was not, as some imagined, great mansions in the Greenwood District. But there was some very nice middle-class homes, especially along Detroit Ave. As it climbed Standpipe Hill on the eastern edge of Black Tulsan Domain, and compared to the conditions under which most black Americans lived, particularly in the rural South, Greenwood was improved indeed. Here, blacks achieved a measure of independence able to come and go as they pleased to work for whom they wish to build their lives of their own. This was not the case in much of the South, parts of rural Oklahoma included, where blacks lived in virtual pinnage as sharecroppers and tenant farmers, tied to landlords by debt, intimidation and courts with a very narrow, very narrow interpretation of the 14th Amendment. From the other side of the Frisco tracks, Greenwood looked sordid, nest of sin and disease, and raised and rebuilt as a warehouse district. A bombonzo waiting, waiting to be realized. Improvised shanties abandoned with outhouses on silts and yards and conspicuous disorder is how Amy Comstock, the assistant and minister of Tulsa Tribute, published Richard Lloyd Jones' description of Greenwood. It was insolent, sordid, and neglected. That crooks found their best hiding places. Corstone continued. There were low brothers, the low whites mixed with the low blacks. There were dope vendors and dope customers. There were crimes were plotted and looted, hidden. The dreams of people like Mary Passion were dismissed as the fantasies of the childlike Negro mind. Hmm. The whites scoffed at the notion of Greenwood as a black Wall Street. It was because they did not understand Greenwood was as much an idea as it was a place or because they understood all too well, I came not to Tulsa as many came lured by the dream of making money and bettering myself in a financial world, wrote Passion, but because of the wonderful corporation I observed among our people, and especially the harmony of spirit and action that existed between the business men and women. Some whites found the spirit disconcerting, particularly in the years after the Great War, when black military veterans returned home 
with a new sense of themselves. From statehood, Oklahoma had tried to limit the across-city blacks imposing Jim Crow laws and attempting a series of manures intending to keep African Americans from voting. Some white Tulsa counties voted expressed open alarm through letters to the editor when a black man, the Reverend E.N. Bryant, won the 1920 Republican primary for the county commissioner of the district that included Everwood and Greenwood. African-American Tulsans asserted their right and resolved in more muscular ways as well. A.J. Smitherman, editor of the weekly Tulsa Star, urged local blacks to arm themselves in response to the lynching of black prisoners in the Oklahoma County Jail. While the boy was in jail, wrote Smitherman, and while there was danger of mob violence instead of citizens had a legal right, it was their duty to arm themselves and march in a body like the jail and apprise the sheriff or jail of the purpose of their visit and to take life if needed to be uphold the law and protection the prisoner. In April 1921, so our timeline is starting to get up to this May 30th day, so I think we're going to find some change here. So it's, uh, we only got about another two pages left, so we're about done. In April 1921, the Tulsa World reported that one white law officer had been shot and another beaten when their car was hijacked by three black men and nearly... Muskie County. According to the report, the assassins freed two African-American men the officers were transporting to the county jail to avoid a lynching mob in the small town of Okata. The story, if true... That Sitherman was not alone in advocating forceful intervention in such circumstances, usually though resistant, was much less dramatic. In midday, an elderly black couple, Mr. and Mr. Gilbert Ildridge, created a minor stir in resolving to move to the back of Tulsa Streetcar. Apparently more presumed than outraged, local officers fined Gilbert urged $10, cursed him for cooperating his wife, and sent the pair home. Can you just imagine that? Just being an old couple and just being like, I'd rather not walk to the back. And then getting fined for that? That's disgusting. It's shameful. All right. Much more disrupting to at least some white Tolsons was the preserved erosion of social and moral standards. 
exemplified by mixing of races in dance halls, speakeasies, and hotels along 1st Street. And in the Negro Quarter, generally the implications was that the black pimps, drug dealers, and bootleggers were corroborating young whites, and particularly young white women, on May 20th, 1921. The city's most outspoken segregationist, the white supremacist, the Southern Methodist, Courageley men, Hordley Cook, took a, co a court of inquiry that he, a companion, had made the rounds of the city's questionable night spots and found them rife with legal activity. At every single place we were informed the deals were conducted throughout the Negro portions, porters. And let me say that they business at once. Out in the Negro section, said Cook Companion, J.I. Hull, we visited a place which perhaps was just out the city limits. There we found white, whites and Negroes singing and dancing together. Young white girls were dancing while Negroes played the piano. This was shocking stuff in 1921. So shocking it became one of the most sensational aspects of the state attorney's general investigation of law enforcement in Tulsa. General Attorney S. Prince Friedley had been after Tulsa and Tulsa County for years. His assistant, Catherine Van Vullen, and George Short had spent months collecting evidence and with the backing of prominent citizens such as Hula and his wife, Lynn, Lina, a friend of Van Leuven and Jones Tribute, Freeing must have envisions a final vindication. Race was a factor, but not only concern in those proceedings. Black Tolsons also complained about lax law enforcement. Barley Clever, a law, a black officer on the force since 1908, was fired in March 1921 after diving too deeply into police. Chief John Schoolson relationship with the black drug dealer named Smithy, claiming not without some justification a political witch hunt, local officers permanently freeling with a court of inquiry, a, a sort of open and informing grand jury authorized by the city character but not recognized by state, witnesses who eagerly gave information to Freely and his assistants behind closed doors fell silent in open court. The investigation ground to a halt to the extent local officers were successful, but there's not so much a victory. In essence, the city and the country defense had been that, while the police and some court officers may have been incompetent, poor, equipped, dangerously unma unmannered, and corrupt, they were not criminally, criminally so. Freely investigations had currently to a standstill barely a week before Memorial Day. Now on the solemn rainy morning, while the rest of the city was occupied elsewhere, two of Tolson's most insignificant residents, a white teenager divorced recently arrived from Kansas, and a black youth various described as a boot black and a delivery boy encountered each other on a downtown elevator. Ooh.
so this is the elevator where it all happens. Yep. All right, that's the end of that. I appreciate you guys for listening in and just uh, reading about our Memorial Day. One of our um, most memorable Memorial Days back in 1921.